Oh, I already have a bottle. I guess this is going to be a two-bottled sermon. <laughs> Strap in and hold on. In Ephesians chapter 2, it's what we'll start off this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, I attempted to go from verses 1 to 10, but I really believe that we have to look at the first three verses of Ephesians. Last week we talked about the, well, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, amongst a few other things. But we ended with Jesus Christ is Lord. In our discussion and uh, the notes that you had, I, I mentioned that if Jesus Christ is not Lord of your life, then He's not your Savior. I know many of you think, or I'm not pleased, many people think that by Proclaiming that Jesus has saved me, or that I am saved, or I'm going to heaven. By proclaiming that heaven is, is a destination for me because I believe in Jesus, and I believe in God, and I'm, I'm a pretty good person anyways. The profession that God has uh, is, is, I believe that He's there, and, and so therefore, He must let me into heaven because, well, that means I'm saved. And salvation doesn't come to those that don't re- don't. Uh, respond or even recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is so important. And I believe that people are out looking for the benefits of salvation. They're looking to stay out of, well, of course, the eternal damnation of hell. They are looking for a blessing that they can receive while here on this planet. They are looking for the good things that God can give them. But they don't want God and all His Word and everything else that's around His Word to dictate to them what they must do. And so therefore what happens is that there is this salvation by, by grace and salvation by life and salvation by uh, what the life of Jesus Christ and what He's done. And, and so we want to be saved from the things that we hear and we know in this world. But don't let God tell me what to do. See, because when you look a little bit deeper into what the scriptures say of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, He is asking us to pick up our cross daily and follow Him. He is asking us to deny ourselves daily and follow Him. He is asking us to not love the world, but to be a part of this world. And this world system, as we will see here in just a bit, has gotten its clutches on many of us. And it is difficult to remove those clutches because, well, it's the comforts of home. They're the things that we want and we desire. And yet, those aren't the things that God desires for us. Well, I'm not talking about being uh, poor and destitute and living out in the wilderness. I'm just saying that when our desires and our needs and our wants supersede what God desires and what God, God's needs are, what my needs are for God and what God wants, there seems to be an unbalance. And so the Lordship of Jesus Christ is important. We submit ourselves to Jesus as our Lord. And it's difficult for us to understand that because in the olden days when they talked about this, they knew exactly what Lordship meant. They had a king. They knew that they would submit to the king. Otherwise, everything would be taken care of or taken away from. Uh, they had lords in the, that they worked for. There were masters that they would sell themselves to. That was the way that they, would, uh, that they would be able to survive. And you would sell yourself to a, a lord or a master of a household, and he would provide for you, and you would do his bidding. Anything he wanted, you would do. Wash the feet of the guests, bring the food in, cook, clean, everything. But, and you understood that he was in total control. He had 
the authority to dismiss you, discard you, or whatever the case is. And in most cases, it's not like the slavery that many of you think about. But in most cases, there were very wonderful lords that people wanted to work for. And they wanted to be a part of, and they became a part of that family. And so for lordship, for us, it's, it's hard to understand. It's, it's difficult for us to grasp. But bottom line, lordship is basically that Jesus Christ is in total control of your life. He is the one that calls the shots. He is the one that takes care of everything in your life. And so to go back to what I just said, many people believe that they're saved, but they have no concept of what lordship is. That is, and if he is not Lord of your life, then you're not saved. I'm sorry to say that. And, and we say it often, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. And we, like if it's just one word, but we focus more on the Savior part, but not the Lordship part. If he's not Lord, then he's not Savior. It's both and. More emphasis on the Lord. And what Paul comes out to tell us is the reason why many people can't see it or understand it. And we're going to see this in the next few verses. Because last week he talked about uh, what it means to, to have Jesus Christ as Lord and, and to, to, to know that he, we are saved. And, and in verse 22 of, last, of chapter 1 it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And what God wants to do and what God's desiring to do is, and Paul is showing us here, is God is building a church. A worldwide church, a local church. A local church that belongs to the worldwide church. A church that Jesus Christ is coming to receive as his bride. Now take, take a look at this picture. Think about this picture for a moment. Here is a groom ready to receive his bride. Here is a groom that is that knows that his wife is selected and set aside just for him. Now, can you imagine the disgust and the disdain that the groom would have if his wife was defiled? And she intentionally did not keep herself for her husband. And our, our body, our church, uh, say, our church is, is in that realm of who we are as his church. We, we come to church and we listen to the word and, and we proclaim Jesus Christ as our Savior, but we have no concept of what lordship is. And one of the biggest reasons is because, well, we're blinded. The lure of this world has blinded our eyes. And so what does it mean to be spiritually dead? What does it mean to be spiritually alive? What does it mean to be saved by grace? I'm going to read the first 10 verses of chapter 2, then go back and we're going to focus on verses 1 through 3. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and this is all part of one sermon, one series, and one thought for Paul. And, and, and again, I, I'm, we're taking a part of it, just, just a portion of it today. And he says in verse 1, and I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. And it says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace 
you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this portion of scripture. I pray, Lord, that we grab the concept of where we were, or even maybe where we are now, where some might be even now. And I pray, Father, that today is the day of salvation, that you awaken the dead, those that are within the sound of my voice online or wherever they may be, that the Spirit, your Holy Spirit, just quicken our spirit and awaken us, that we may repent and believe. So thank you, Father, for this portion of Scripture. As we dive through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone says, Amen, amen and Amen. What Paul wants us to know, we'll see here in verse 19 a little bit later, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Paul is emphasizing what God has done. Paul is emphasizing what it is that he has accomplished, that what God has accomplished in our life. Paul is emphasizing the greatness of God and the wonderful, wonderfulness of God. And in these 10 verses, he presents to us our past is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at what we were for those that have been uh, saved, that made Jesus Christ their Lord and their Savior. And then we're going to talk next week about the present and the future of who we are and what we are to do. And within this framework, it gives us this aspect of our salvation, what we are saved from. If you remember here, and just, just a little bit ago, that, that God, we were at one time sons of disobedience, at one time among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. At one time, the, the mind, uh, we were by nature nature, children of wrath. God is saving you from himself. You're not being saved from the world. You're not being saved from your bad habits. You're not being saved from your financial, uh, whatever it is that's going on in your life. What God is saving you from ultimately is himself. Because we were children of wrath. And this wrath, this anger, this punishment that is going to come upon those that would refuse to believe. Oh, they want to believe. They desire the things of God, but they don't want God. They don't want lordship. They just want the salvation part. And Jesus was very clear when he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. But didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we, didn't we do all these things that everyone else is doing? And Jesus says, I, you know, you might have been. Wanting to, but Jesus is clearly going to say, I was never Lord of your life. You continue to be Lord of your life. So this salvation that Paul is talking about, he's saving us from God himself, which is kind of difficult to grasp. I need to be saved from God? Yes. It's the wrath of God that will come upon those that refuse to believe. Well, see, and the reason why we can't do so, the reason it's difficult for us to even look at that or others to see it as well, is number one, if you pull, open up your outlines, pull out your outlines, number one, I was spiritually dead. I was spiritually dead. 
Ephesians chapter 2, the first part says, and you were dead. You were dead, dead, dead. There is nothing you can do to a dead person. I've heard, and maybe you, you may have heard as well, of people that have flatlined, that have died, and you've seen it happen. It happened to my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law just fell, and there was nothing that they can do for him. And, and they tried, and tried to revive him, but once you flatline, once you're down, you're down. You see this everywhere. You see people crying, and it doesn't matter how much you cry, how much you pray, how much you try to get that person back to life, that person is lifeless. In the same manner, each one of us, we were spiritually lifeless. We were dead, separated from God. Nothing you can do to a dead person to bring them back to life. The EMTs, they don't come and they look at you and they say, okay, this person is, spirit, this person is physically dead. They won't ask you. They will come up to you and over your corpse and say, may we administer the defibrillators to jumpstart your heart. Please respond because he can't. And God is not going to ask you for your permission to save you. You are dead. He is going to give you that jolt of the Holy Spirit and bring you back to life. And this is why Paul says you were dead. You were dead and, and you, continually, you continue to be dead until God does something miraculously in your life. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And we are dead. We're spiritually dead. Not because we sin. We're spiritually dead because we're sinful by nature. Not because I don't become a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. I don't do bad things because I'm bad. I, I'm, I, I'm a, I do bad things because I am bad. Not because that doesn't make me bad. And so except for Jesus Christ, the only person on this planet ever born into sin was Jesus. And every one of us were born into sin. We were conceived in sin, as Paul would say. And our problem is not being out of harmony with the world or with this life or with other people. Our problem is not me and you, as we will find out in Ephesians chapter 6, that our struggle is not against, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. My struggle is not against those, but it's against the powers, the principalities of this dark and evil age. It's the things that are behind the scenes. That is my problem. My problem is that I'm out of harmony with God, my creator. I'm out of harmony with what God has designed me to be and yet what I've turned out to be. And I was born in sin. And my principal problem is not that I cannot make meaningful relationships with other people, but that I have that I'm not able to until that relationship is built with God himself. In Ephesians chapter 4, we'll find out that it says, and this is in your outlines, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance. That is in them due to the hardness of our hearts, of the hearts. See, man's condition has nothing to do with the way I live. It, it, it has, has to do with the fact that I am dead even though I'm walking, I'm alive, I'm breathing, I'm spiritually dead while being physically alive. And because man is dead to God, he is dead to spiritual life. He is dead to spiritual things. Paul says in Second Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, The man without the Spirit cannot understand the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to them. Those things of the Spirit in chapter 2, excuse me, those things of the Spirit don't make sense to people. And I'm sure you've tried to talk to people. It just doesn't make, make any sense. 
And it doesn't make sense because the person cannot receive what you are giving them. And until a person is made alive and brought to life, can he understand those things? Number two, Paul says, I was a slave to sin. I was a slave to sin. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. One of the first indications of a physical body is the ability, uh, you know, as I said earlier, is is the inability of a physically dead body is the inability to respond to any kind of stimulus. We can't. A dead person cannot react. A dead person cannot hear, hear or smell or touch or feel anything. I know that in the discussion of, of our final journey home, we've discussed many times on how the last act is going to be done for us. And, well, of course, some would like cremation and some would like traditional burying. You know, and why, why would you want traditional burying? It costs so much money because just the thought of me having to go through all that fire and pain and you're dead. <laughs> you're not going to feel anything. You can't. And there's nothing that, that, can, that can bring us back to life. But when we're done, we're done. And so when we, when we were dead to our trespasses and sins, we were dead and we were in that trespass and sin. And it felt comfortable. It felt really good. As a matter of fact, a lot of the things I did, I might have felt bad about the things I did to some people. I might have felt bad of the things I've done to myself. But at the age of 30, I come to recognize that I needed to be alive. I needed to change in my life. And, and God woke me up. And so those things that now I look back on, I feel really guilty and shameful about. But I thank God that God has cleansed me from all that unrighteousness. And so when we talk about this slavery to sin, Romans chapter 6, it says this. Do you not know, this is in your outline, the second verse. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. When you have Jesus Christ as your Lord, you are presenting yourself to Him and you obey what He says. The problem is that many people don't know what He's saying. The problem is that a lot of people don't know what He said. Didn't He say something to the effect of God helps those who help themselves? We hear things like that. By the way, He didn't say that. Somebody else said that. As a matter of fact, what Jesus said is that God helps those who ask. Didn't, am I not supposed to you know, build myself up? Am I not supposed to take care of number one? Am I not supposed to focus on my life? No, Jesus said, empty your life, get rid of your life. And the problem is that we hear all these voices without going straight to the word of God. And until we understand what God says about what Jesus, God's word says about what Jesus said to do, then we're going to follow just about anything else, wanting to get better. And, and the interesting thing is that the more, the better it sounds, the, you know, and, and the more clever and, and cliche-ish, I guess you would say, let go and let God. When, when you think about that, you, you have to think, okay, well, that's got to be in the Bible. No, it's not. You don't just stand back and let God do any, everything for you. You have to continue. And we'll see this in verse, in verse 10, that he has created you for good works. He's created you to do good works, not for your salvation, but because of your salvation. And when we were dead, we were slaves to sin. It felt good. I did what I needed to do. I did what the master required me to do. I, I, but now I'm a slave to righteousness. Righteousness. 
Dead is a sad state of the unredeemed. And that's, that's what we did. And, and how you're able to see the difference. I said earlier, lordship. Lordship is making Jesus Christ the Lord. He's the one that dictates what you do, what you say. He's the one. And the way to, to show and, and to express that and to be able to have evidence of it is what you say, the things you do. Look at this, this verse, Matthew chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus said this, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. In another portion of scripture, Jesus says that it is what's inside the heart that defiles a man because what's inside the heart is what comes out of his mouth. And I don't know and I can't see and I don't know where you go. But you have to examine yourself. What is coming out of your mouth? I was just kidding. No, you weren't. Everything you say comes out of your heart. You know, well, people are just, you know, they they get me mad. They make me mad. Nobody can make you do anything. And I'm sure if they could make you do something, mad wouldn't be it. Can somebody say amen? They wouldn't make, as a matter of fact, they'd make you, if they could make you do anything, they'd make you be safe and sound and sweet and gentle, you know, but not mad at them all the time. There is, and we, we, we defer and we project our feelings and our thoughts on everybody else and we absolve ourselves of any type of wrongdoing because, well, you know, it's just the way I am. Well, the, the reason you're like that is because that's your heart and your heart is what's evil and your heart needs to be transformed, needs to be transplanted, needs to be changed. And so when you're able to share good things, even though inside your mind you're wanting to cuss this person out. You know, and I've, I've stopped people in the past when they use the word, oh, darn it, you know, what is that? Well, instead of saying the other word, you might as well say the other word. It was in your heart. Or, please forgive this expression, you know that freaking thing. I go, what? You know that, why would you use, I don't want to use the other word. You might as well say it. (laughs) It's in your heart. You know, I mean, that just shows, that just shows your immaturity or at least your intelligence or lack of. Because there are many other words that you can actually use besides that F word. And, And it shows, more importantly, your heart. And there's people that just blatantly go out and say this and that. And I, I had a, a guy that, that does work for me drive by one time and he says, oh, you have a, and he started off with all these explicit, beautiful church and this and that. And I love the grounds and this and that. I mean, dude, <laughs> this is God's house. Come on. But that's how he speaks. And you can't fault a dead person for speaking like that because that's who he is. He does not understand because his heart is evil. Beloved, I just want to share this with you right now, and this is kind of off topic. But, but if, if you are constantly berating and yelling and cussing or talking to people in such a language, in such a manner that demeans them and hurts them, you have a wicked heart. And the Bible says you will not see the kingdom of God. You will not see the kingdom of God. Your heart needs to be changed. And you know you've tried to change it and, you know, you've probably gone to seminars and and done all sorts of different things to try to change your life. But God has to change your heart. And he's asking you to repent. Stop doing that. Repent and go the opposite direction and do the righteousness of God. And how do you know that? Well, it's right here. 
That's how you know that. The third thing that Paul is sharing with us is in the back of your outlines. Number three, I was separated from God. <coughs> Excuse me. I was separated from God. In chapter two, <coughs> chapter two verse 12. <coughs> that one went down wrong. Excuse me. In verse 12, it says, remember... Paul, we'll, we'll hear about this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul says, remember. Today we're going to remember what Jesus Christ did for us. And we're going to partake of what we call the Lord's table. Some call it the sacrament. Some call it the, um, uh, the Lord's Supper. We are the Eucharist, we call it the Lord's table. Because at that table, Jesus Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. And I'm going to ask you right now to start to examine your heart. Paul says, do not do this in an unworthy manner. That's why many of you are sick. That's why many of you are dying. Christians, because you're doing this in an unworthy manner. When you take the bread and you take the juice that represents his body and his blood, what we are doing is we're remembering what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And we're looking forward to the day that we will share that with Jesus Christ again. And there's always a remembrance. Paul says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Paul is trying to make a point. You have to keep your life going in the forward direction. Remember what God saved you from every time I look back. And I thank God for saving me. If he does nothing else for me for the rest of my life, if he doesn't bless me for nothing else for, for, for the rest of my life, I owe him a, a grateful heart. I owe him a, a, this attitude of gratitude and this thankfulness that I have in my heart. And I will serve him for pulling me out of the wrath that I was under. He saved me from himself. Before every, anyone, else, anyone of us are saved, we're dead in our trespasses. And we're dead, not because we commit sins, but we're, we're sinners. That's why we sin. And when, when you talk about trespasses, the word trespass, paraptoma in Greek, is, is a different word than sins, which is amartia. Paraptoma meant to, to, to slip, to fall, to stumble, to deviate, or to go the wrong way. To, you know, maybe not intentionally, but you went the wrong way. How many of you guys have ever been driving and you lose yourself because you don't know where you're going? Okay, you guys, okay, one guy, all right, two guys, two people commit, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll admit it. Yeah, I do that all the time. And that's what you're doing is you're basically doing a paraptoma. You know, you're doing a trespass or you're passing through somewhere that you know that you shouldn't be or you're lost. And, and it's a very simple term in our, in our language today. However, when you're walking the Christian walk, there are certain things that God has called you to do that you're not doing, that I'm not doing. And that paraptoma in my life, for instance, is when somebody asks Jesus, what's the number one commandment? What's the one thing I need to focus on? What is the one commandment that I, in my life, have to do? And Jesus says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. With everything that you are, you love God. That's the greatest commandment. The problem is, is that I can't. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that most of us can't follow that commandment with all my heart. I, that means I have to think on God 24-7. That is the greatest commandment. And if it's the greatest commandment that Jesus said it's the greatest, then it has to be the number one greatest commandment that we 
fall and we paraptoma, we go the wrong direction. Not that I'm thinking about evil things. I think about my family. I think about my children. I think about my grandchildren. I think about if the Chargers are going to win this year. Okay, I've lost some of you already. Okay, you guys are probably thinking about football now. Okay, but let me go to Hamartia. Hamartia is an, an original, it's a sin, where originally it meant missing the mark. It was this marksman that would shoot an arrow, and, and when he didn't hit the bullseye, it would say, Amartia, you missed the mark. There's a standard. There's a, something that you have to reach. And none of us reach that mark. That mark that Jesus Christ had said, that Paul had given us, that we are to be in a Leviticus 11. Leviticus 11:44. God says, For I am the Lord your God. He says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. That is a command from God himself that you are to be holy. He says, I want you to be holy for I am holy. And you shall not defile yourself with any swarming things that crawl on the earth. He's talking about the dietary supplements that they are supposed to be eating and not eating. He says, don't do that. I want you to be separate. The word holy, by the way, and I've stated this many times before. The word holy is not that you're perfect. Or that you're pure. The word holy is not that you are uh, this saint and you're, you're above it all. The word holy, like God, is that you're separated. You've got to be separated. You've got to be different than the rest of the world. This world and its evil desires has its clutch on us. And our school systems are making sure that that continues with our children. And the children in the past. And in our workforce now. And this world system is bringing us down. And the Bible says you need to separate yourself. Do whatever it takes to separate yourself. And the common response I always get, but I have no choice. Yes, you do. You don't have to work in this ungodly place. But then how am I going to make money? Well, don't you trust God? He fed the Israelites for 40 years with manna. You know, but that manna, I mean, every day, manna this, manna that, manna burgers, manna pizza, manna, manna, I'm tired of this. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, yes, but he'll fulfill your need. And it might not be a glamorous life. Because the world says you have to have this. You ever notice how commercials and advertising is always advertising that you need more. You can save money by spending money. That doesn't make sense. But there's a sale, 30% off. You know, if you can just spend more money, you can have more stuff. They never advertise and say, have less stuff. Don't buy these products. All they're going to do is clutter your life. They're going to end up in your garage on the, on the, on the corner, on the curb, or in a, in a garage sale anyways. Don't buy them. Especially, don't buy them for your kids either. But what do we do? We buy more stuff. Why? Because advertising is powerful. And we have to take the word of God and let it advertise to us what we must do. As a matter of fact, this wasn't just an Old Testament statement. Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, how many of you are willing to confess? I'm perfect. I'm there. Because we're not. As a matter of fact, look at this. Peter, Peter. Of all people, Peter, I don't know if you know anything about Peter. Peter was a very loudmouth, brash, lying, braggadocious type of person. He was always wanting the center of attention. He was like, yeah, you know, I'll do it. I'll never forsake you. Never. I'll die with you, Jesus. Jesus tells him, Peter, you're going to deny me. He says, I, I wouldn't do that. Never. The rooster crows the third time and 
looks over at Jesus being beaten. Jesus looks over him. Eye to eye, they meet. The Bible says that he went outside and he wept bitterly. That was Peter. But something happened to Peter later on in life, and he writes uh, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to read part of it for you. It says there, therefore, he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Now, if anybody's going to tell me to be sober-minded, I don't know if I want Peter to be telling me this, especially after what I've just said. But he has gone through these changes. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is looking ahead. Jesus Christ is coming back. Beloved, if you don't think he's coming back soon, it's happening. Just look what's happening in our world. How everything has just fallen apart. In a matter of days, this country has folded and has become what it used to be after 20 years. It can happen here. And in the Orient, they're coming in and they're building up. And if you know anything about the last days, the last days, that's where a big battle is going to ensue from, from the East. And many people wondered, how, how are they? They're a very third world poor country. How are they going to be able to rise up and be this world power? Beloved, it's here. How is, how is Israel, and I mentioned this last week, how is Israel going to be plundered? How is Israel going to be defeated? How are people going to come up against Israel if for the last 1,900 years there hasn't been any state of Israel? There hasn't been anything even remotely resembling a country. Where, where do they live? They live everywhere. In 1948, God made it possible for them to come back to Israel just so they can get plundered. They don't know it. Just so that they can be defeated. Just so this war that God has called Armageddon at the end of time, just so his word can be fulfilled. This is happening. You can't buy or sell. You won't be able to buy or sell anything. You, you know, 50 years ago, people would say, how in the world are they going to know what I buy or what I sell? How in the world are they going to even be able to decipher how much I've brought in and how much I, you know, spend out? A couple of years ago, Costco called me and says, hey, by the way, uh, that yogurt that you guys bought and purchased, you need to throw it away because it's expired and there's something wrong with it. I says, all right, and I hung up. I go, wait a minute, how'd you know I bought yogurt? They know. They, I don't know if you've ever sat around your house and you're talking and all of a sudden the food, your phone goes on and says, you're talking about something, you know, we should get some pizza. Your phone goes up, five pizza places, locations in your area. This is what's been prophesied centuries ago, two centuries ago when Paul wrote this. And we always thought, how is that going to happen? Israel doesn't even own a state, their own place. How is that going to happen? How are they going to know? You see, what Peter is saying here, therefore, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And this is the verse that is in your outline. He says, but be as he who called you is holy, and you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, and he quotes Leviticus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Separate, different, apart. This is lordship. This is why you were saved, to be under his lordship. Jesus did not give a new standard by restating a very old one. 
He didn't. This is something that's been from the very beginning to Jesus to now and even today. It is because of that perfect standard of holiness that men are set apart from God. That we cannot be anything from but sinful. We, we are nothing more than sinful because we cannot be holy. We cannot be perfect. We cannot be pure. This is why we need a Savior. See, because God didn't say, I'm only going to punish some of the sins. You know, if you only did one or two, you, you know, maybe I might let you in. No. It's all the way out. It's all the way out. And this is what God has been stating from the very beginning. And throughout history, people had varied greatly in their levels of human goodness and, and wickedness. And, and because we're sinful, doesn't mean that everything we do is sinful. The, the depravity of man, all that states is that, you know, you cannot, by your own volition, in your own will, by your own free will, you cannot choose God. You cannot. And when, you're, when an individual is deprived and he's a reprobate, he's, 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 beyond, he's dead. A dead person cannot choose God. God has to wake them up. And in that process of life, as we're going through it, you see, we, we, have, we have this, we're able to do good things. All of us do some good things, but those good things cannot get us into heaven. And at every funeral, there are people that say, you know, this guy was a very good person. I know he's up in heaven. He's doing some great things. And the hardest thing to tell somebody is that good things don't get you saved. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the only way of salvation. The person who is a good parent, a loving spouse, an honest worker, a civic humanitarian, they all need Jesus Christ. They all need to be saved. And the hardest person to try to get salvation into their life is those that are doing all these good things. I, I'm good. <laughs> you know, God's going to look at me and he's going to say, yeah, you lied a little bit. Yeah, you did a few bad things. But you know what? Overall, come on in. As if God has this, this standard, you know, and, and you know, if you do enough good things, he'll, he'll lower his standard of perfection just for you. So you can just jump right on over. You know, I'm building these up and building these up. And God's going to say, all right, why not? That's not the way it works. We must be saved. As a matter of fact, he told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a teacher, the teacher, a ruler, a ruler, a Pharisee. There were only 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Jesus. Not of the 6,000 Pharisees, you know, Nicodemus was one of them, but he was a ruler, he ruled uh, this, this cabinet of probably about, I don't know, 30, 40 people. And then Jesus even called him the teacher of Israel. He was the man that had every answer to the Bible. If you wanted to know what it was, you go to Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus, you cannot get into heaven. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You must be born again. And before he said that, before Jesus Christ even stated that, he said, Truly, truly. In essence, he's saying, I want you to pay attention to this. This is not just something I'm saying. I am telling you, I am telling you, this is the truth. This is the truth. This is God himself. This is God himself saying that you must be born again. Not, you know, somewhat born again. Not, you know, it's okay if you understand the born again theology. No, you must. Nicodemus, the ruler, the teacher, the Pharisee, you must be born again. Three times he tells him. You, just, so you don't, just so you can get it, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Not your family, not your mom, not your dad, not anybody else. You personally have to be born again. That's for another time. We'll talk about that as we talk about the grace of God.
but it's by grace that you're saved through faith and this not of yourselves. Number four, when I was in this world, I used to seek the world. When I was dead in my trespasses and sins, I used to seek the world. He says, remember, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, in the sons of disobedience. The word cosmos, the world, he's not talking about the, the, the physical creation, but the world order, what's what, what we are a part of, this system, the world's systems of values and the way of doing things and, and, and the world's course and how the world is going. And, and it's interesting because you know that now the good things, they're calling them bad and the bad things are calling them good. And Isaiah prophesied that years ago, that that's what's going to happen. It seems that everything goes and anything goes. The first thing they, try, they did, I, I was going to say try to do, but the first thing they did is they took God out of the schools. They took God out of the courtrooms, the Ten Commandments. They, they've been doing this for, for the last, uh, you know, almost 100 years. For the last 80 years, they, they've been systematically taking God out of the family, taking God out of the home. And now that God is out of the picture, they're inserting their own indoctrination, their own thought, their own ideas, and, and, and all these other things. It's no longer male and female. It's no longer uh, a code of a moral ethics. It's no longer uh, what, what the Bible teaches. Now it's a matter of what you want to do. And this system has shifted. And many people, it's like the frog in the kettle. There was this, there's this book that was written by a man named George Barna, and, and it was a statement that they used to say, it's like the frog in the kettle, and how things slowly change. If you threw a frog in a pot of boiling water, he would jump right out, because he didn't want to get burned. But if you put the frog in the water, and then incrementally turn the heat up, he will sit there and stew, and he would eventually die. And we have in our culture this frog in the kettle. In the last almost 100 years, it's been changing. And now it's like, throw some carrots in there. Why not, you know? Throw some, yeah, throw some onions in there, some salt and pepper. We'll make this thing taste really good. How many of you guys like frog soup? Maybe not frog soup, but frog legs maybe. This course, this system, this cosmos, this, what we're living in, Paul is saying that you used to follow this in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. It's interesting that God calls him, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, where everything that we receive now, all the information that we receive today is no longer in printed form. You can get it in printed form, but it's a lot easier to what? Get it through the air. Get it through the internet. This system, this, this ruler, he doesn't own it. God has given him the ability to control it and to manipulate through the air. And not only just Satan, but the demons and everything else that's around here. And it manipulates the minds of individuals, of children. And this world system, this course of this world designed, that follows the leadership and design of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. And he infiltrates everything that we hear, everything that we see. And you know, I, I see people with earbuds on. Make sure they hear it right, correctly. All powered through a Bluetooth. On kids' headsets, even. And we willfully and willingly just listen to all this stuff that's coming in. Now, I, I listen to things on the radio as well. I listen to uh, some podcasts, and I, I, I listen to stuff on the air. 
And I, I've learned sometimes on how to decipher. Well, that just doesn't sound right. I mean, how is it that? But when you're not ingrained or if you're not brought up in doctrinal teaching of what the Bible says, understanding that these manipulation tactics are happening. And it, it, gets, it gets me and it gets some of the, the best ones that I know, best minds as well. It happens. And, and, but that's what Satan is using. And he says, we used to walk in that. And that used to really just influence us now. Now we are influenced by the Word of God. We, we look at the Word of God. We read the Word of God. We live the Word of God. And we apply the Word of God. And, and if you're part of my, my students in the class that we're teaching right now on how to work through the Word of God, there's five things that we need to do. We need to hear it. We need to hear it preached. Okay, we need to read it, which right now you are hearing it and somewhat reading it, but we need to do this on a daily basis. We need to memorize it. Okay, we need to memorize it. We need to study it. And we need to meditate on it. Meditation, a lot of people think of this Middle Eastern type of getting outside of yourself. But for the Hebrew people, meditation was this deep contemplating thought. It's like a cow when he chews his cud, you know, and just chews it and takes it in and he brings it back out. And, and then and with three stomachs, of course, it takes it back in again and it brings it back out. And it brings it back, takes it back in and brings it back out. And it creates this wonderful, delicious, creamy milk. And in your life, you take the Word of God in. And you, you know, okay, what did this say? You take it back in, and you, okay, what did this say? And it creates this wonderful, creamy milk of life. And you can be satisfied through God's word when you meditate upon it. When you meditate upon God's word, and you're taking it in, and you're looking at what God's word says. You look at it over and over and over again. You just can't read it once, you know, from cover to cover and say, I read the Bible. You've got to have these. And then there's the last one is application. You've got to apply the Word of God. Put it to use in your life. God's Word never changed an individual. It's the applied Word of God that changes you. It's the applied Word of God that changes you. You know, the course of this world is, is what's out there, and we're taking, in, we're taking in more than the Word of God. But when you take in more of the Word of God than the world, then you're able to see. The problem is that most people only take the Word of God in at church. Some people only, you know, they come religiously during Christmas and Easter, Christmas and Easter, and uh, that's it. And very little do we get into the Word of God. You need to get into the Word of God because the prince of the power of the air is after you and your family. Look at this verse in Ephesians 6, 12. When we get to 6, chapter 6, we'll, we'll expound on this even more so, but for now, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, as I mentioned to you earlier but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is this battle going on behind the scenes that you do not see. And, it, and when you have an argument with somebody, and nations are arguing against somebody else, another nation, it's not the nations themselves. It's all this stuff that's going on behind the scenes. This is why we need to be in the world. Excuse me, in the word, not the world. The last thing I want to share with you is, at that time, I used to be in sync with the world. I did. I would walk in the world. What Paul is saying here, see, see you were dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. And what you did is you, you were dead, at, you were separated from God at that time. And you used to walk in this manner. You used to follow the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now 
at work in everyone, and among whom all of you once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And by nature, what Paul is saying there is that we are naturally born into sin. This is why you need a Savior. And we are synced up with the world. We are walking right alongside with them. And everything seems to be just unfolding so, so beautifully in our lives. And, and it just seems because we're at peace with it. I don't know if you've been hearing the news that's come out of Afghanistan, but one of the first things that happened is they started to attack the Christian churches. And I don't know if you've even seen or heard, but you know, there's reliable sources that I've, I've been following for some time now telling us about the, the martyrs in the nations and in the world. And there's this one source called the Voice of the Martyrs. And in this one article, actually, in this one statement, and there, there, is, there are people in Afghanistan, the Christians had to go underground. And they're talking to somebody stateside, and they're relaying to them, look, we, we've decided to follow Jesus. Even the children were excited. Yes, we gave our life to Jesus. We're going to continue following him, and we're going to just continue going and growing. And all of a sudden, in the background, they hear this loud noise and gunfire and silence. This, beloved, is being out of sync with the world. When you're in sync with the world, none of that stuff will happen to you. When you're in sync with everything else that's going around, nobody's going to persecute you. No one's going to laugh at you. No one's going to say that you're crazy, you're a conspiracy theorist. Nobody's going to say that you have lost your marbles. Nobody's going to accuse you of, of being anti-social. As a matter of fact, beloved, one of the things that's going to happen, and it's happening even now, is all these things that the Bible talks about that we shouldn't do, they've now legislated that you can murder your children, that you can marry whoever you want. And it's all legislated. And when you make a stand against that legislation, it, they're going to persecute you, not because you're a Christian, which ultimately that's why. They will persecute you because you've become an enemy of the state. You're no longer following the laws and the rules of the state. You're in sync with the world, nothing happens. When you're out of sync with the world, then these are the things that they're going to label you with. Now the question is, where do you want to stand? The question is, how, how are you going to stand if you don't understand what the Word of God says? Because this is happening and it's very real and it's going to be even more real as the time approaches. Among whom we used to be. This is why Paul says in Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And very incrementally, it, it gets a hold of us, and it, it takes us in, and we become a part of this world, and it feels good, and we're, we're, we're all you know, one big happy family, and great. And if you come to my house, you'll see that we have air conditioning. We, you know, we're not living destitute. We have food. We have a fridge. We have furniture. We have things. We have stuff. We use it to honor God with and to have Bible studies and invite people over. And, you know, we have stuff. We have children. We have grandchildren. And, and we have things. But the things that we have are not overpowering us. They're not the newest things. They're not the newest gadgets. It's not the, you know, I got to have type of thing. They're things that we use for ministry, things that we use for our life, things that we use. Now, once those things get taken away, if they ever do, which many people believe it's coming, we will gladly just surrender them. 
we'll surrender our lives because our lives are protected and governed by God. You see, Paul says, I say walk by the Spirit. And this is, this is so key. This is so key because in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, after he goes over and he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were, and were by nature's children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... But God, two of the most powerful words in the Bible, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You see, beloved, you could have been or you may may still be and you will continue to operate within the world. You'll be in sync with the world. You'll be part of the world. You'll be, you know, and, and there's things that you're going to walk in and you're going to live in and you're going to, you know, but here's the thing. Two powerful words, but God. But God, you know, it, it, you can be a child of wrath, but God. You can be dead in your trespasses, but God. You can be walking in the ways of this world, but God. What God wants to do is lift you up out of this mess, show you that it's not even that important, and explain to you and have you see the kingdom of God. Because you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And that's when God comes in. But God. And we're going to talk about that next week. On how this salvation is by love, being rich and mercy because of the great love with which He loves you. He loves you. He wants this change in you. And he wants you to see how easy it is. It's not difficult to surrender. He wants you to see and how a group of people together here at this church and wherever you go, there are people around the world that have surrendered, that have given their life to serving and following God because that's what Jesus Christ came on the cross to do. Jesus didn't come on this cross to make you happy. He didn't come here to say, okay, I want you to be happy now. I've had people tell me that. Well, doesn't God want me to be happy? No. No, that's not why he died on the cross. That's not why he endured this. That's not why he was, a spear was placed in his side, a crown of thorns on his head. That's not why he was beat, mocked. That's not why he was nailed to a a cross. That's not why he was ridiculed and hung out in public so that people could come by and mock him and ridicule him and laugh at him. Put him out in display to make an example of anybody that wants to go up against the government. That's not why Jesus Christ died on the cross. He died on the cross to make you holy. You cannot be holy by yourself. And so when we partake of this, of the Lord's table, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that when Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, he did it so that you can be saved and no longer be a child of wrath. Let me ask you to stand. But God, the reason you're here today 
is to hear this. Some of you have already experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ. Some of you have already been walking with the Lord for some time and you've experienced that. And and maybe like myself, you've been a little bit discouraged and disappointed, maybe even a little bit depressed and and discouraged because of what's going on in the world and and wondering, okay, Lord, you, you know, when? As the martyrs would say in the book of Revelation, when, Lord, when? When is, when is your justice going to be dispensed onto this planet? When are you going to return? And, and some are not even looking for Jesus Christ's return, and it's a certainty. As I've said before, there's, th- over th- there's like 300 prophecies of Jesus' first coming, and there are twice as many, almost a thousand prophecies of His second coming. And a lot of these things have already been put into place. Now, it could be now, it could be 10 years from me, it could be 20, it could even be 100 years. I don't know, but I know it's a lot closer than it was 2,000 years ago. We prepare ourselves, we prepare our children, we prepare our church. And you may be discouraged, but I believe God brought you here to encourage you that if you are and you have already committed your life to Christ, then that's who you were. And if not, if you've not yet made that profession of Jesus Christ being your Lord, He just can't be your Savior. Because if He's not Lord, He's not your Savior. He has to be Lord, the one calling the shots. And you're probably afraid, how can I do that? What, what do I have to do? Are they going to cost, is it going to cost me anything? What do I, do I have to come here every Sunday? Every day? Well, you know, those are some of the things, the questions that I answer for you. And all you have to do is just be back on Wednesday. And I'll answer a lot of those questions for you. If you want, we can meet on Sunday night. And I'll answer, you know, what does it take to be a member? What does it take to be a Christian? What do I have to do? And I can walk you through the passages of Scripture, what the disciples did. And I think for many people, they're afraid to have to surrender. They're afraid to have to deny themselves. They're afraid of having to step back away from the world because that's where my friends are at. They're afraid to have to step back from family. They're afraid of what people are going to say. Beloved, there's a lot of people in hell right now that wish they would have just not been afraid. That really would, would have said, you know, I'm, why didn't I just listen to that message? Why didn't I just not receive it and repent? You have that opportunity right now to just repent. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because the command is clear. You must be born again. You repent and believe that. Repent, stay away, get away from this world as we talked about because that's what those of us that have committed our life to Christ used to be. We were. We were dead in our trespasses. You were walking in the ways of this this prince of the power of the air. You were children of wrath. You were sons of disobedience. And if you still are, verse 4 is specific for you, but God. You're here to listen and hear the word of God to tell you His love, His mercy. His mercy is for you. See, the difference between mercy and grace, grace is undeserved. You don't des- none of us deserve grace. By definition, I cannot demand it because then it wouldn't be deserved. Grace is something that he gives because he's just a giver of grace. You don't deserve it. Mercy is saying, okay, I'm not going to do that to you. Okay, I'm I'm not going to give you the penalty that you deserve. 
Grace is saying, I'm going to give you more on top of what you don't deserve. The best way to explain that is if a police officer pulls you over and he says, you know what, you were speeding, but I'm not going to give you a ticket. That's mercy. The ticket, I know it's $350, but I mean, not that I know, I've heard. <laughs> that, that, seriously, I haven't gotten a speed ticket. Anyways, let's get back to the story. He doesn't give you the ticket because he says, I'm going to be merciful to you. And I know that you haven't gotten a ticket in a long time, so therefore, I'm just going to wipe it. Just don't do it again. Thank you. That's mercy. Grace is, you were speeding. Not only am I not going to give you a ticket. Here, here's $350. You don't deserve that. See, grace is God not just saying, okay, I'm not going to punish you, your sin, but I'm giving you eternal life. That's grace. When you understand it like that, you realize mercy. Okay, I didn't get what I deserve, but grace, I'm getting more of what I don't deserve. And none of us, by the definition of being sinful, deserve anything but to be the children of wrath. Father in heaven, I thank you once again for the cross of Jesus Christ that paid the penalty for my sin. It's his blood, not my works, not what I do. It's his blood, not anything, not because of who I am, where I was born, to whom I was born. Of what I've done in life, it's only because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Father, that today's message impacts me and and helps those that understand this is where we were. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to remove ourselves from this world. And I pray for those that are hearing it for the first time or maybe for the second or third time and have not yet made that commitment that today be the day of salvation. All we need to do is to repent and believe. And I pray for those individuals, Lord, that you're working on right now. I know it's a difficult choice, especially when we've been so accustomed to this world on how, how it feels and the comfort and the, the just the the knowledge of knowing that everything I need is right here. But Lord, you have all that we need. This world is fading away and all its pleasures and desires. But your word will last forever. Father, as we take part in this communion, help us to remember the sacrifice that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.